Hello and welcome to an unexpected episode of Modern Day Philosophers. Unexpected by me, because I didn't think I'd be doing any more. Uh, I kind of felt like uh, I, I, I just had no more passion for it. I didn't plan on doing any more. And then something happened and here we are. And that something is thanks to my good friend Stephen Allen Green, who joins me on the line. How are you, Stephen? I am fantastic, Danny, especially when I'm being spoken to by yourself. Oh, that's very nice of you. Uh, Stephen Allen Green, you may remember from a past episode of the show, a very, very funny comedian, a good friend of mine, and somebody who I'm proud to know. Uh, So, Stephen, you have mentioned to me over the years that that you have this friendship with uh, Carl Gottlieb, and... You were kind enough to offer on some occasions to that we meet, and I, I never took you up on it. And then I saw this film called The Automat, and I interviewed the filmmaker who made The Automat, and the filmmaker mentioned that a big catalyst in getting the film going was Carl Gottlieb, and it triggered in my memory, oh, yeah, Stephen's friends with Carl. I'd really like to meet him, and I'll turn it over to you for what happened next. Well, thank you, Danny. Uh, first of all, I want to clarify something. Uh, we're not actually good friends, you and I. are not actually good friends. <laughs> I just want to clarify the audience so they know that. Thank you. I mean, honesty is, rep- is always important. I, it's my reputation, Danny. I can't have too many people <laughs> knowing that we're friends. It's just not good for my career. Um, no, seriously, you're a lovely man. Uh, and, and okay, so here's the thing with, with Carl. Um, uh, Carl Gottlieb, is perhaps the most accomplished and knowledgeable uh, great writer and a comedy gem uh, in Hollywood. And uh, I first saw Carl in 1969, December 31st, the last day of the 60s, at the Tiffany Theater on Sunset near the Comedy Store when he was with his San Francisco sketch comedy group called uh, The Committee that had Howard Hessman and some other great people in it. You actually saw The Committee. That's I saw it. I was wow. 13 years cool. old. I saw them. Yeah, it was it was uh it was actually an episode where um uh someone got me really stoned for the first time. I mean really stoned and I hated it and I thought I was freaking out and I <laughs> and they took me to this comedy show to calm me down. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, uh, but I've never touched the stuff since. And by stuff, I mean comedy. Um, so <laughs> uh, yeah, so I saw Carl, and I, you know, years later when I became a comedian in the eighties, and I was uh, performing at the Comedy Store, which is my home club, and then you know, hanging out at the Improv and causing trouble down there at the bar, I met this wonderful guy named Carl Gottlieb. Didn't put two two together, you know, that I had seen him like get a you know. 20 years earlier or something anyway uh so yes i got to know him and he was friends with some uh uh, improv sketch comedy people that i knew and uh uh at one point i owned the rights to a book about london in the swinging 60s and i met with carl to be a writer and we got to know each other then um and then just over the years um especially in the last 10 years or so He's become truly a great friend, a dining friend. We go out and have dinners. and I like that and, term, a dining friend. Oh, a dining friend. Rather oh, than yeah. just a friend I eat with, you know? 
Just a friend I eat with, you know. <laughs> he, he, it's not just a matter of him picking up a check most of the time. It's really uh, just having the most fantastic uh, d- d- dining partner, conversationalist. You know, I mean, you learn so uh-huh. much. He's such a historian in Hollywood. Sure. Um, and he's he's about the wisest person I've ever met. He's just absolutely brilliant. So to the listeners, this is the kind of thing Stephen tells me that intrigues me. And I think, hey, I'd like to meet this guy. And uh, I said, Stephen, you know, you've you've said that this could be a a possibility. Uh, What do you think? Can we make this happen? I'd like to meet him. Right? So I'll pick up up the story from there. Yeah. So what happened was, uh, let's back up a little page here, okay? Because uh, you, you, you know, let, let's 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 tell your audience the truth, okay? Yeah. For once, Danny, um, <laughs> you contacted. It's a funny story. You uh, contacted me and said you'd like to meet Carl Gottlieb, right? And I, I said sure, you know, and I don't just bring anybody over to Carl Gottlieb, you know. I, I, I make sure that they're at a certain intellectual and accomplished level. And I guess the bar is pretty low, huh? Uh, yeah. <laughs> if I, I was up for the, in the running, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I called up Carl. I, did we do a three-way phone conversation? I don't well, so this is what happened. So I, I, yeah. I mentioned to you that, you know, you've, you've often talked about Carl Gottlieb and the possibility of meeting him. I'd really like to meet him. And you said, sure, let me, let me see if I can make that happen. And you talked to him, and he, he said, sure, I'll meet the guy. And he, he gave a date uh, that we could all go out to eat, and I was out of town. Uh, so I said, I can't do that date. Or it was Passover, actually. And I said, yeah. I, I can't do that date. And you said, okay, I'll find another date that works with him. So I, 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 I called you up to follow up, and, and you said, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to do that. In fact, let me put a, a three-way call on right now, and we'll see if we can work this out. And, be, and just like that, before I knew it, I'm on a three-way call with you and Carl Gottlieb. And, uh, and do you want to kind of uh, say how that went? Pretty badly. Uh, <laughs> because the intention, the, the, intention of this, the intention of this mission was simply to arrange a meeting either at his house or at a lunch. Right. And uh, I was, you know, trying to pump you up so Carl would know that you're at his, you know, within the zone and not even close to his level, but, mm-hmm. you know, that you're a legitimate Hollywood person. And I said, you know, oh, and Hollywood Danny person. has this incredible yeah. podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, I forgot that you weren't doing it anymore. Yeah. Uh, that's the point of this, of my story. Danny. Right, right. I said, he, you know, I didn't want to say he did this incredible podcast or, you know, I said he has this incredible podcast. He's interviewed Carl Reiner and he said this person and that person. Uh-huh. Um, and so Carl sort of took you in as a legitimate person because he can understand. He does these celebrity shows uh, where he signs autographs and things, um, and he gets contacted every single day from people all over the world who want to meet him and interview him. And he's got to, you know, decide which ones are worth his time. Uh-huh. Frankly, um, <clears throat> so I was pitching. I was saying, you know, Danny's legitimate. He's had, in fact, he's got this podcast. You know, uh-huh. so what happened was Carl then a light bulb went off and he went, yeah, let's do the podcast. Right, right. And I was and, like, and, and I'm, I'm like, no, no podcast. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting trying to roll it back. And I was trying yeah. to say, I was hoping you would say, 
Uh-huh. Oh no, I used to do that, but you right. know, instead you just went with it. Well, which I was, is so I was, Daddy LaBelle. I was just like, uh, okay, you know. He said, "Well, <laughs> he said, is that what this call is about? You want me to do your podcast?" And it wasn't about that. I didn't. I didn't even have the podcast going. And I was just like, uh, okay, okay. That's what it's about then, I guess, because I realized he, you know, what he said is like, I don't, I don't need to meet any new friends. You know, we caught him on a bad day, I guess, because he was just like yeah. in, in a mood. He's like, I don't need any new friends. <laughs> I was like, oh boy. He had a boy. toothache. He had a yeah. toothache. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I was just like, okay, great, Steven. This guy doesn't want any part of me. And then, <laughs> you know, I don't know what the heck's going on here. And, uh. And uh, he's like, I'm at that stage of life. I go, what stage of life? Do you not want to meet any new friends? He's like, I know enough people. And it's just going poorly. And that's when Stephen jumps in to try and save it. And he goes, he's got a great podcast. And he goes, oh, you want me for the podcast? And I, yeah. I was just like, I guess at this point, I mean, I, I sound like, you know, <laughs> this, is, this sounds like the only savable thing here. I guess I'll do the podcast. So just like that, the podcast gets brought back to life. <laughs> well, but did you just put together or buy a, a, a podcast bus or something? I'm working on a podcast bus, uh, a bus that will be a, a mobile podcast studio. It's almost right. ready. Right. But that's right. not for and, me to do my podcast. I was just to, to rent out to other people who want to do podcasts. That's the idea. I think of that. you should do both. You should do both. <sighs> Maybe I will at this point. But uh, I just, uh, I was, my feeling is at this point in my life, as he's talking, I'm at the stage in life. I'm at the stage in life <laughs> where I just. Uh, I don't need any new podcast. I don't care to, anymore because <laughs> it, it, frankly, I feel like it's over for me. And I just want to make a buck, you know, so if I can uh, produce podcasts for other people or rent out a studio, then great. You know, I don't. Uh, hey, listen, Danny, can I tell you something that just occurred to me? Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I hear you. I hear you. But and I'm criticizing myself as well here, probably more than anybody. I'm not even criticizing you. Mm. But whenever somebody in the business who's, you know, had success and then lost it and had it and lost it. uh especially if they're Jewish, like you and me, whenever we, whenever we say, uh-huh. I guess, I guess it's, I, I guess my success is in the past, or I guess I'm not in it anymore. You know what it is? We're pretending to be God at that point. And I think it's, it's wrong. Okay. We, we don't saying. know what our future is. We uh-huh. don't know what our future is. Well, I'll make one uh, little edit on that. I never said I had success in the past. That's you said that. I, I I feel like it's never been that successful, and the, at a certain point, you got to know when to fold them. For me, but uh, you know, I mean, well, look at it this way. Look at it this way, Danny. With the amount of money that you and I have made in showbiz, if we had that same money back in 1921, we'd be millionaires. <laughs> I don't even think that's true. <laughs> I don't even think my money now would be worth much in 21. Yeah. But, uh, you know, anyway, God bless you, Stephen. And thank you for uh, making this interview happen and for kicking my butt back into gear to do a podcast because it was fun. And I got to meet Carl Gottlieb and uh, it was it went way better than that phone call, as the listeners will hear. <laughs> Though I left this in at the end when I said to him, did you enjoy it? He goes, 
as much as I enjoy any of these things. <laughs> he was having a bad day. That's all. <laughs> he just goes, I, I'm glad you didn't ask any stupid questions. I said, well, I'll come up with some. But uh, Listen, there's one thing that Carl is afraid of, but not afraid of. And we all know what that is. Sharks. And <laughs> maybe he just thought you were a shark. You know, another uh, shark. Another oh, he's not a shark. Okay, come on in. <laughs> It's a carnival at the circus, and he's the doorman. Danny, God bless you. I'm glad you got to meet Carl. He's a great man, a great guy, great friend, great writer, and a great comic. And I'm looking forward to, to uh, listening to this interview and feeling extremely envious. Thanks so much. And uh, without further ado, except for the intro song, wait, one further ado, I want to also thank my good friend Alex Fasella for putting together the philosophy quotes. Uh, he came out of retirement for this one, too. All right, now, without further ado, except for the intro song, I give you my interview with Carl Gottlieb. Enjoy. When Daniel LaBelle was in school, he didn't pay any attention. He's older and wiser, he's learning philosophy with his comedian hench people. Each of whom is a wonderful sage in their own right as well. It's modern day philosophers. And now here's Daniel LaBelle. First of all, thanks so much for having me here. This place is a lot to take in. It's an incredible... Yeah, this is uh, one of the apartments that they don't make anymore. It, uh, it's vintage 1928. That's yeah. When, that's when they built the building. It looks like it could have been uh, a set from the movie Sunset Boulevard. Yes, something. yeah. It's definitely old Hollywood. Yeah, how, how, how long have you been in here? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say 40 years well, it's only embarrassing from, I don't know how that's Well, I'm a prisoner of rent control. Oh, okay. You know, I get that's along a, with my landlord. He could rent this apartment for three times what I'm paying. Mm -hmm. But it's a lovely prison. We have a, we have a nice uh, relationship. Yeah. And it's huge. It's three bedrooms and three baths. I would give you the tour, but I've got, a house guest staying here, so. Okay. So you're an old Hollywood guy in an old Hollywood place. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, for those who don't know you, you've had an incredible career. And I don't think you need me to tell you that, but uh, I'm telling the people out there. Sure. Uh, possibly, I guess, probably best known for co-writing The Jerk and Jaws, right? Yes. If I was a Jeopardy category, it would be. His hits begin with a J. <laughs> <laughs> but your career goes way back. You you, you were involved, I, be, I believe, in an improv group or yes, a, I, I, in San I, Francisco. Yeah, I came to California. Oh, committee, to, right? Yeah, I came to California to work in the committee in San Francisco, and I was a stage manager and a director there, and then an actor. And then, as an actor, the show came to Los Angeles in '68. And I came with them, and, and uh, we were a hit, and I got hired to do the Smothers Brothers, and I got married, and, you know, mm -hmm. my yeah. life changed. So tell me a little bit about the committee. To tell, tell folks about it. Committee was uh, one of the first improv groups uh, at a time when there were only three or four of them mm -hmm. nationally. There was Second City in Chicago, Compass Theater in St. Louis, the premise in New York and the committee in San Francisco. 
And if you were an improviser in those days, you knew all the other improvisers. It was a very small world. So who were the other improvisers? Oh, I mean... I just, that, that we might know now. Oh, any, anybody, everybody from uh, uh, Stephen Colbert and Amy Schumer and... and uh, but those guys came uh, along a lot later. Yeah, but, I'm, they, but they... I'm, I'm thinking back then, oh, was, from, was it Shelley Berman, then, Alan Alda, guys like no, that? Well, the... the there was an actor named Roger Bowen who had started uh, with Compass Theater in, in uh, Chicago back back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, there was an actor named Mill Stewart, a black actor. Um, uh, half the company is dead now, but uh, Larry Hankin, who's still around, a uh, very, very popular actor. Uh, and... That was about it. The one, oh, Peter Bonners was uh, was uh, one of us. He was my director, my first director. Uh, Wavy Gravy was in the company. Wavy Gravy. Wait yeah. a minute. Wavy Gravy doesn't he have a clown school? Yep. Yeah, my wife went to his uh, camp. Wavy yeah, Gravy camp went rainbow. Oh yeah, that's where my wife used to go when yeah. she was a kid. Yeah, well, I. I when I met him, he was uh, doing poetry to jazz in Greenwich Village, and uh -huh. his name was Hugh Romney. <laughs> uh, then he became Wavy Gravy. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, so he was there. Uh, Lee French, uh, who was on the Smothers Brothers show, is the, mm -hmm. the hippie girl. Um, uh, uh Howard Hessman was was in in the company with me. How important was the committee to you in terms of what you wound up uh, it, doing it, after it? It changed my life. It taught me everything I know about. Mm -hmm. uh, between my old drama professor at Syracuse University, who was very influential in my life, and my friends at the committee, uh, and, the, and the committee's director, Alan Meyerson, they were the ones who uh, basically started me on the road to here. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, to uh, living in this old Hollywood yeah. building. <laughs> yep. Well, I, I started, I was a stage manager at first. I was a techie. And when I came to the committee, I was their first stage manager. They didn't have a stage manager before me. But then I graduated to acting and... and uh, and it's, uh, apparently it's a long and honorable tradition of the stage manager becoming an actor in the company. Hessman was a stage manager, a guy named Jim Crana, who was very big in San Francisco, who never came to L.A. He had no interest in coming to L.A., and he made a good living in San Francisco doing comedy and voiceovers. Uh, uh, there, there was... Uh, it's, it's it's essentially my extended family. If I have if if I have anything like a family, it's not my family. It's the people I worked with in the committee over the last thirty, forty, fifty years. So, so let's hear about your family. Family. What, what what was your life growing up? Oh, I, I grew up in Washington Heights in Manhattan, in the Heights. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, yeah. When I watched the movie In the Heights, it's shot in my old neighborhood. It's in my old street. Is there? I mean, I. I see all these places that I grew up in. Uh, I was a New Yorker. I was born and raised in Washington Heights in Manhattan. 
Now they call it Hudson Heights, part of the gentrification mm-hmm. of the northern end of Manhattan Island. But um, but uh, I, I was born and raised yeah, there. Anytime uh, they rename a neighborhood, I know I can't afford it anymore. Yeah. Uh, and I, I uh, went to grammar school and high school. Mm-hmm. I went to eight years. In those days, I did eight, four, and four. You know, eight years of grammar school, four years of high school, four years of college. And college was interrupted. I did two years going to City College in New York. Which one? A CCNY Uptown, oh, okay. Uptown Day, Townsend Harris Hall. Okay. Same place my father went. Um, and then uh, after two years, I was tired of taking public transportation to school because for four years of high school, I took the subway every day. Mm. And then two years of college, I was taking the subway and a bus. And I said, no, I want to... I want the whole college trip. I want Dink Stover at Yale. I want quads and dormitories and fraternities and you know football games and all that. You wanted stuff. the whole experience, the whole yeah, shebang, the whole the whole college thing. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, I made some applications. I had a scholarship. In those days, New York State gave what they called a Regent Scholarship. And it was a competitive exam that was given to every high school student in the state. Uh-huh. And the top 2,000 or 1,200 or whatever it was got a four-year stipend of $350 a year, which in 1951 was you know, enough money to go to college. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my parents had saved, of course. And then I worked at Syracuse. I, I worked in food service, and I was a short-order cook. And Back I, when America was still somewhere that you could uh, – Afford to live and afford to do things. Yeah. Well, as as, Mm -hmm. uh, some of my friends point out, in those days, you could go to UC Berkeley for nothing. Right. Or UCLA, for that matter. California had a wonderful, inexpensive university system. My grandfather went to NYU and Parsons School of Design. My mom went to Parsons. Yeah. They may have known. Well, I don't think they would have known each other. Your mom would have no, been. No, no, my mom was there hundred years ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> unless she hung around for a really long time. No, <laughs> but it was it was it was, uh, and also it was a great time to be in New York uh-huh. because it was uh, shortly after World War Two, and I, uh, because of World War Two, the whole city had stopped. There was no new construction, no new subways, you know, no new anything. No new cars, models, you know, everything was in the war. So when the war ended, uh, the city was kind of unchanged from what it was like in Fiorello LaGuardia's day and, you know, the back back when New York, you know, the Depression New York, Texas Guinan, you know, 52nd Street Jazz, you know, all, uh-huh. all, that, all that stuff was there and in place. Right. There's even an elevated train on Sixth Avenue, which they tore down almost immediately. But well, now New York's back to the seventies. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> now they're fighting their way back. Uh-huh. But I, I, you know, I loved it. I, I, I have this uh, feeling that everybody who's a citizen of a world city—New mm-hmm. York, London, Paris, Madrid, Tokyo, Rome—you know, the Athens—you're a citizen of that city. First, you consider yourself a New Yorker or a Londoner. You still consider yourself a New Yorker? Yeah. Even after all these years After out all here? these years. Dual citizenship. I still have a place in New York. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Where? Uh, 70th between West End and the River. That's a good spot. Right in Manhattan, yeah. Yeah. Because my mother, my mother bought it uh, when she 
she moved, and uh, my sister and I inherited it when my mother passed. And it's a great location, and it's a nice building. How often do you get out there? Well, now, since 2019, hardly at all. Mm-hmm. But I, I used to travel back and forth regularly. But uh, I had a heart attack in 2019. That slowed me up considerably. And then COVID, just, just as I recovered from the heart attack and was like certified okay and mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I don't have live-in caregivers anymore because I had caregivers in here 24-7 for mm-hmm. a while. Wow. But when they all got finished and they said, okay, you can live on your own again, which you, we know you like to do, I said, great. And then along came COVID, which for a person who lives alone didn't change that much. And I can afford to have stuff delivered. So gave your t- heart time to really yeah, and, and get strong. I so I'm, I had a pretty... Uh, Pretty good recovery. Yeah. Uh, Extra time. Yeah. Extra time to heal. But, uh, but yeah, but before that, I suppose you were going out there quite a bit then. Yeah. I I, I was, I was traveling and I, I was uh, doing a lot of fan shows. I was going, you know, going places and signing autographs and, Mm -hmm. you know. How do you like that? I liked it. It was fun and, and there was a kind of a welcome source of um, cash income. You know, because mm-hmm. uh, you can't make that much doing it, or I couldn't. But on a, a on a really good convention, there's one called Schiller Theater that takes place in New Jersey every year. I did Schiller. I think I walked away with forty five hundred or five thousand cash for the oh, weekend. Oh wow, that's great! You know? And the others, I would make two thousand or three thousand. If you want me to dress like you and go to these yeah. things. <laughs> Yeah, I'll pretend. Yeah, they're fun. And yeah. they're fun. And you meet you, Do you meet, meet interesting people. people there. Pardon? Do you meet any interesting people at these things, or, um, or is it just quick sign and they walk away? Well, no, any- they're, 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 well, you can't stop and make friends because you got a line of people waiting to for your signature. So you know, mm-hmm. you're basically just chatting. You know, how are you doing? Where are you from? Having a good time? Mm-hmm. And, you want a picture and a poster or just a picture, you know, <laughs> you want to buy the book, you want to buy this edition, that, edition, you know. Well, yeah, like when I do these comic cons, it's the same kind of thing when I sell my yeah. comic books. Yeah. The, yeah, you bring your, your merch. Right. And you, you lay it out. Pedal your stuff. Yeah. Sure. And I, I, I liked doing it. And I, I, I didn't, I missed it. And I'm, I'm just now starting again. And now, because I don't rely on it for income, uh, if it's inconvenient or if it's a date that I don't like, I just, you know, I just don't do it. I thank them for asking and sure. go on about my business. It's a good position to be in. Yeah, it is. I, uh, well, well, let's let's go back to our story here. Okay. We got a young man who's grown up in Washington Heights, and he. Then I went to Syracuse University. Yeah, you study theater. Uh, I studied theater. I was a dual major in uh, theater and journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I thought. My highest purpose would be I wanted to be Kenneth Tynan at The New Yorker. I wanted to be a New York theater critic. I wanted mm. to be Brooks Atkinson or Walter Kerr or Kenneth Tynan. Okay. Is there uh, still a part of you that, that's a theater critic? No, no. Uh-huh. And as a matter of fact, nowadays I look at – I've actually posted this line of dialogue on, on my Facebook page – 
the internet is full of people I don't like making material I don't care for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so it's not nearly as much fun as it used to be. And and again, I came of age in Manhattan during the golden age of Broadway. I mean, I saw Yul Brynner do The King and I. I saw, you know, uh, Zero Mostel do Rhinoceros. I saw uh, John Gielgud do Twelfth Night. I saw, you know, I saw... And I, I imagine from, through I, your career, you've met a lot of these people too. Yeah, right? and I saw Ethel Berman do Gypsy. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I saw... Did you know Zero Mostel? Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, I have a family connection to Zero. Yeah. His brother, Milton Mostel, was an, the accountant partner of my uncle, uh, Victor Gottlieb. So the firm was the called account- Gottlieb and Mostel. Oh, not the accounting firm of uh, Bialystok and no, Bloom. No, not Bialystok and Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, years later, when I was directing at Universal, I was directing an episode of the... Uh, the uh, official universal ripoff of uh, Animal House. It was called Delta House. <laughs> okay. And yeah. the Belushi part was played by, uh, in, in, for television by Josh Mostel. So I posed for a picture with him, and I uh-huh. said, look, Gottlieb and Mostel, ah. just, just like our uncles, so my, your father and my uncle. History repeats itself. Yeah. So... You get out of college. I get out of college. And you're like, I'm going to become a theater manager. I graduated in January. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing going on. I mean, it was cold and wintry in Syracuse. It just, they said, you know, you can come back and wear the cap and gown. But, you know, that's in June, you know, right now. And it's, it's January in Syracuse and it's freezing cold. Yeah. So I got out and I was walking across the campus for the first time in 16 years without a homework assignment because mm-hmm. Kai was through with education. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, this is an important decision. I am not going to work at anything except writing in the theater. That's what I prepared for. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to do. And I'm not going to be an office temp or a cab driver or, uh, you know, lumberjack or, you know, merchant marine. You know, I'm not Mm going to do any of those jobs. I'm only going to do work if it's in the theater. And luckily, I I was able to do that. My my first job was hanging lights and doing tech stuff in Greenwich Village coffee houses Mm -hmm. in 1960. Who was around then? Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Carlin, Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Cosby. uh, Cosby, Liddy Bruce, everybody. Who do you know from those names? Any of them? I I knew most of them. I know you know Joan Baez from working together on the Smothers Brothers, Yeah, I know Joan. I I knew Joan Joan Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Uh, uh, Wavy. Gravy, of course. Any any anecdotes with any of these people from that time period? Well, I remember I, I got drafted uh, right around that time. Right. You became the entertainment director. Yeah. In, I, in the Army. Yes. Yeah. So in 61, I get drafted. And I go into the Army. And I'm in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, finally. Mm-hmm. Where we all want to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm... 
in New York on, I think, Christmas leave or something, in between basic training and, and being shipped to my formal duty station. Mm-hmm. So I'm, uh, and I'm at the kettle of fish and I'm having drinks with Wavy Gravy and Peter. Uh, in those days, Paul, Paul Stuckey, was the highest paid entertainer in Greenwich Village because he emceed at the Cafe Y. He was the, the regular MC. I know the Cafe Y. It's still there. Yeah. yeah. And he was, he was the, uh, the MC. And they had just formed Peter, Paul, and Mary. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were saying, oh, boy, we, got, we just uh, did a version of a Hammer song that'll knock you on your ass. Mm-hmm. And I went, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And then I went back in the Army and I'm back in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and I'm listening to the Top 40 radio. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, here comes, if I had a hammer, I had a hammer in the morning. It was them. Yeah. And it was that song. And they were Peter, Paul, and Mary now. That was, oh, you know, how cool is that? that you, you know, know. Their lives changed. Yeah. Um, and and uh, uh, there's uh, Dylan I was never pals with. Phil Oaks I was close to. I'm sorry to see him go. Dave Van Ronk. There's a whole lot of folkies. I mean, in those days, if you were a folk musician, it was kind of like being an improviser. You knew all the other folk musicians. They all could fit into the circle in Washington Square Park on a Sunday. Yeah. And they did. I mean, you, if you wanted to meet a folk singer, you just went down to Washington Square Park, and they were all there tra- trading licks. Wow. Now if you go there, it's just crackheads. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, times have changed. And crackheads and chess hustlers. Right, right, <laughs> and crackhead chess hustlers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what about the comics? Did you know any of those guys, Lenny Bruce or George Carlin? I met Lenny Bruce. I met. I met. You know, we were. You know, it was it was a scene. You know, and you were around. I, I you know, I wasn't close with any of them. Uh, that didn't happen until later when I became an actor in San Francisco. But at that, at that time, I was a, a stage manager and lighting designer guy. So there you're a stage manager. Then you become part of the committee. Right. The committee takes you out to San Francisco. Right. San Francisco at that time, that was the scene. Mort Saul yep. was out there at the Hungry Eye. Did you did you know him? Were yeah. you part of that scene at all? Well, yeah. But, well, we were the committee. We We, we were... Stars locally. We were the biggest mm-hmm. thing in San Francisco. And luckily, we were dark on Monday nights, and everybody, all the other clubs were dark on Sundays. So on Monday nights, when we were dark, we could go see everybody who was playing in San Francisco, and it tended, that tended to be Lenny Bruce and, and uh, Mort Saul and George Carlin and Jack, his, his then partner, Jack Burns. Uh, there's a, a lot of talent on the streets there. And, uh, you know, you, you couldn't help but, but know everybody, you know. You, now there's a lot of crackheads on the streets there. Well, yeah. I, mean, I, <laughs> I could do this for every city. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now crackheads. Well, I, I'm a member of a Zoom group, uh-huh. which is eight or nine guys who were in grammar school together in Hudson, in Washington Heights in uh-huh. 1948. Wow. They're still around. Eight of them are still around. We meet periodically and Fantastic. talk about the old days. 
and who's dead and who's alive. Amazing. I'm still friends with, well, is, I've got nothing on you because you've got a few years on me, but I'm still friends with two guys I went to, to play group with when we, we met when we were all in diapers before yep. we even could speak. Yeah, no, there is, there is that that continuity Yeah, that, you know, that if, if you're, I don't know if, if it's being lucky or if it's making the effort to stay in touch or, or what you need to do, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's nice having friends is, I guess, what it boils down to. Yeah, it's nice, nice like, to keep up these Like-minded people, contacts. people you can do, yeah. discuss what you do with. Right. Yeah, I'm originally from Flushing, Queens. Oh, okay. So not too far from where you right. are from. Well, the world's fair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I grew up right near right near that. Yeah. Uh, although much later than oh, the of world's course, fair. Of but uh, I grew up in the same apartment complex as uh, yeah, when I was a kid. It was I lived there, obviously, with my parents, but in the same building uh, complex were my grandparents and my great-grandmother. Sure. It was like a little shtetl, you know? Yeah. It was... Uh, was a, I was very sad when my parents moved us to Long Island because I lost that whole little world that I had there. Yeah. And my view of the New York City skyline out the window, which I loved. Yeah. Which is now blocked by the New York Times building. They 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 took away that whole skyline with the big building that they built there. But what are you going to do? Ironically, the New York Times blocked out New York. <laughs> well, I I I mean I I'm I'm facing it here in L.A. because. You know, they're just tearing stuff down left and right. Even the strip is changing and, you know, mm-hmm. high rises and these hotels around here. None of that was here when I got here. It's a shame, I think. But I well, guess the, 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 the line is Los Angeles is a great city if they ever get it finished. But I think it's also just a shame that all these places, the, there seems to be no reverence for, you know, the way things are in these yeah. cities. It, I don't know. The, I, I feel like for the character of the city is what well, I'm s- trying s- to get s- at. Sadly, uh, you know, uh, things have to kind of change to keep moving. And, and of course, you know, with COVID, the world has changed in ways that we'll never, you know, fully appreciate because... It has changed everything. And, of course, you know, we're rapidly losing the planet, you know, to, to, to global warming and overpopulation. Uh, this It's a well, pretty grim outlook. Part of how this interview came about, obviously this interview came about through our great mutual friend, Stephen Allen Green, who is a wonderful comedian and, put us in touch, but part of how this, my ambition to interview you came about was I saw a wonderful film called The Automat. Oh, yes. And I covered this. I, I you know, I, I'm also a, a writer and I do some journalism oh, yeah, and I, she, I, she. I, I wrote a piece on it for the Jewish Journal. Oh, yeah. Did you read it? I didn't. Okay. But uh, And she mentioned to me that you were one of the catalysts behind getting that movie going. It's true. It's true. I I met her. I was up in uh, Portland, I think. No, Seattle. Seattle, yeah. I was up in Seattle uh, doing a... uh, 
She was uh, a theater manager there. Yeah, she was a theater manager, and and I I was there to do a uh, uh, do my show and sell sell my stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was my liaison. She was she drove me around and mm-hmm. and she took me to the uh, uh, there was like a a high donor luncheon so for the people who contributed a lot to the festival mm-hmm. to the film fest. It was a Seattle film festival, I think. Okay. Anyway, we 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 got along well, and then when she she called me about the automat, mm-hmm. I happened to mention it to Mel Brooks, who I know and and have dinner with frequently. Have you ever worked together, you and Mel? No, no. Okay. He, he, different generation. But uh, uh, Mel, Mel, uh, I, I, Mel expressed, you know, just great fondness and nostalgia for the Automat. Yeah. And I said, you ought to meet this girl who's doing a show about the Automat. And they hit it off great. And Mel wrote a song for her I about the I saw the, the film, Automat. yeah. It was yeah well, you song, saw the film. Yeah. And, uh, and she... She's very happy to have him, and and he's, uh, you know, he's, right. God knows he's worth having. But that movie was so great in that it it really shows that nostalgia of old New York and that that innocence that we've that we've lost societally. Uh, that that was kind of expressed beautifully in that in the Automat, which people don't know what that is. It's like it was an old New York chain, New York and Philadelphia chain of coffee shops. Where they had these these little like vending machines, I think that came from Berlin or something, and it, it, the, the, it was uh, an automated fast food, uh, a technological marvel for its day. But it looked so charming. I think that's it what was. It, yeah. it was. It was absolutely charming. The, the automatic interiors were all beautiful and egalitarian. Mm-hmm. There was. Uh, uh, you know, black and white could sit next to each other. There was no segregation. Yeah, not even de facto. Uh, it was uh, it was just terrific. I mean, and I was reminding you there was an automat in my old neighborhood up in northern Washington Heights, and right on 181st Street, across the street from the RKO Coliseum, mm-hmm. which was a big old movie palace that I grew up going to on Saturday matinees. Uh, Oh, it was, it was a it was a great time to be in New York, I must say. I never got to be there for that, but uh, I, I I caught the tail end of that New York charm. Yeah, and uh, I guess that sort of goes back to our conversation about what these cities had and what they're losing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to our story. Yeah, there you are. You're in the committee. You're in San Francisco. You're the biggest thing in town. Right. You have the nights off that you're seeing Mort Saul. You're seeing Lenny Bruce, and and also uh, 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 some great jazz too. Mm-hmm. Is that where you met the Smothers Brothers? Uh, no, I met them in L.A. But after. while you were part of the committee, or after yes, that? Yes, when yeah. I, I was when the committee in '68, the committee brought the show to Los Angeles. We played at the Tiffany Theater up on the Strip, and we had. Uh, uh, four actors shared a house on Queens Road. We had a great time, and and uh, that was uh, the uh, and the Smothers Brothers, like a lot of other people, came and saw the show, and they would hire us as actors based on what they saw. The Smothers Brothers were uh, assembling a new staff of writers for their show, 
Uh, That's where you met Steve Martin, I assume. Steve, Steve Martin, Bob Einstein, mm -hmm. Alan Bly, Lorenzo Music. Yeah. Uh, Paul, a guy named Paul Wayne. Did you see that documentary they did on Bob Einstein? No, I haven't. It's, it's I haven't. great. Super, Super Dave Osborne? Yeah. Yeah. They made a documentary on HBO about him. And they, I think they have Tommy Smothers in it, I, if I recall. But I don't think... Um, yeah, and anyway, so yeah, they, anyway. They, oh, I mean, Robert Altman saw the show and hired me to be mm -hmm. in the movie of MASH. So I started to get work as an actor outside of the committee. Small parts, but parts. Right. And I had a career, you know. All of a sudden I had a career. I had a Writer's Guild card, I had a Screen Actors Guild card. I was so, in a popular show. Because when the committee opened in L.A., we got across the board rave reviews. We got in the LA Examiner, the Herald Examiner and the LA Times loved us. Uh, Daily Variety and Hollywood Reporter and Billboard and Cashbox liked, uh, loved us. And the LA Free Press and the Avatar loved us. So we, we were hits, you know, the alternative press, the regular press and the entertainment press. They, they all, Gave the show good reviews, and we got a lot of business. We stayed a, we were you know sold out all summer long. Yeah, it, was, it was. Let's say I, I get back, I go back in time right now, and I show up at your show, the committee in L.A. What, what, what's the show? What's the rundown? What am I going to see? Oh, well, we open with an improvisation called "Man on the Street," in which we deal with topical subjects and. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the actors assume different characters and comment on them. And my job was to be the interlocutor, the man on the street holding the microphone. I would do the interviews. So you were like the straight man. And I the, was a straight man. Okay. And I had to read a lot of newspapers because we would ask for suggestions for something in the news. And if the actors didn't know anything about it, mm -hmm. when they came out as a character, I would have to fill them in. In the in the process of asking the question, I would have to Teach tell them. the actors yeah. what they needed to know. What if you didn't know? What if it was a story you hadn't caught? What'd you do? Well, all my life I've been somebody who knows a lot, uh -huh. who knows a little about a lot. Uh -huh. And I don't think I ever ran up against anything I didn't couldn't talk about for a few minutes at yeah. least. I mean, I, I I used to have a bet that I'd make with anybody. Drop me into any convention kind of gathering, any group of people. Mm -hmm. I don't care whether they're heating and air conditioning guys or uh, actors or professional bowlers or right. athletes. Put me in the group, and for at least two rounds of conversation. You can hold your own. I, I will convince them that I know everything that they know. You know what? This is exactly the, the TV show pitch that I wrote. It's called Dinner with a Bunch of, and uh, it would be me having dinner with a bunch of doctors or me having dinner with a bunch of uh, watch repair guys yeah. or whatever it is, yeah. and I just have to you know, keep the conversation going with those yeah. people. It's, so we have uh, yeah, some so kind of a kinship in that. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think if I don't get any interest, I'll just shoot it on my own. Why not? Might as well. Yeah. I usually don't get any interest, so I know how to. I know how to do things on my well, own. Well, there's, there's, it's, it's hard to get interest. And if it's not a prequel, a sequel, or a reboot. Right. You know. People don't make anything original anymore. So you 
you become friends with Steven Spielberg at some point along the line and wind up uh, rewriting the script of Jaws together, right? It was right. kind of a written thing, and and then it wasn't it wasn't what we know Jaws to be. And no, you and Steven go and rent a house somewhere and and workshop this script. Is that correct? Or? No, no. What the way the way that happened was uh, Spielberg and I had the same agent. Uh, famous uh, Mike Matavoy was our agent. He was one of the first people into packaging. He liked to put his clients together. Uh, so I worked for Stephen in two television pilots that he did before anything. Uh, there was a picture he did called Something Evil, which was essentially The Exorcist, before The Exorcist. And then there was The Savage Report, which was a pilot for uh, a news team show starring Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. And this all came out of the committee, having worked in the yeah, committee. Yeah, I mean, my, my, I earned my performance chops in the committee. Everybody knew me as an actor from there. I remember, let's come right back to this, but I wanted to hear the rest of the show. If I went to your show at the oh, committee, okay. well, it starts with Man on the Street. We opened with Man on the Street interviews. Mm-hmm. Then we would probably do one or two scenes from the repertoire, the, you know, just stuff that we had done over the years and we knew it worked. Sketches. Sketches, yeah. It was sketch comedy, yeah. what it was. And then uh, and then we would do uh, some genuine improvisations. We'd take suggestions from the audience. Uh, we'd improvise poetry. We'd improvise musicals. We'd improvise all kinds of stuff. And... Uh, we would take take suggestions, and I was very scrupulous. And I I wish all my uh, mates were mm-hmm. also, though, though they were not as careful as I was. But I, when I introduced the scene, I was always very careful to say, "And now a scene from our repertoire, based on your suggestion, whatever, mm-hmm. or." This is a, a work in progress, which means we had improvised it. It was successful, but we hadn't made a sketch out of it yet, and it wasn't in the show. That was a work in progress. Or, and now an improvisation based on your suggestion, which was a genuine improvisation where we didn't know what the hell we were doing when we started. And that tells the audience, go easy on us. You can yeah. kind of go easy on us, or this is the real deal. We've, well, the, the nice yeah. thing about improvisational theater is the audience is rooting for you. I mean, when an improvisation goes well, you can't tell the difference between it and scripted entertainment. People pick up the cues. Everything is, it, it looks like it's been rehearsed for 100 years. Yeah. But it, but it hasn't. It's just happening in, in real time. And the audience wants you to succeed. I mean, it's their, it's their, it's their time also. So uh, they're kind of watching the product. Even if the improvisation is not that successful, or the jokes don't get big laughs, the process is interesting. You're watching real actors struggling to uh, create something out of nothing using the, only the, the tools of characterization and a few chairs and a few hats and pairs of glasses. That was the, the extent. We didn't have props and costumes sure. beyond that. Yeah, I did a bunch of uh, different improv schools over the years and yeah. did a bunch of shows. And 
I love the camaraderie of it. So different than stand up. You know, I did stand up for so many years, and you're up there alone, and, and it, sometimes the audience feels hostile towards you. Oh yeah, no, you're but, in stand up. It's kind of alone and competitive, and you're yeah, competing against combative. all uh, competing against all other stand up comics, and you know you're kind of battling the audience in right. a way. You got to win them over. And then, and then, like you said, with improv, the well, audience is on your side. They're like, we're part of this. We're right. all in this they, together. You know, it's, it's their suggestions. They remember giving the suggestions. They're fascinated watching mm -hmm. you kind of work your way through. And when you get to the, to the blackout, to the ending, uh, the applause reflects, you know, holy shit, they, they set a problem we gave them a suggestion. They solved the problem, and we were amused and laughed and applauded. So, yeah. you know, the best of all possible worlds. It's a friendlier world, the improv world, because well, it's all based on collaborating. Agreement. Yeah. Improvisation is based on agreement. Uh, one of the cliches is, you know, um, you know, the, the essence of drama is conflict. No, I mean, the essence of comedy certainly is not conflict. It is. Cooperation, you know, yes and, not no but. Right, right. So we were a, a, a group of people dedicated both philosophically and professionally to the concept of yes and. Stand-ups are often dedicated to no but. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot more negating. It's a lot more being at odds with things. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, so... Now let's let's fast forward back to the conversation about Steven Spielberg, where you're packaged together by your agent uh, to to both work on. This is the third thing you're working on together. You mentioned the other two. Yeah, he went off, and then Steven got Sugarland Express and went off to direct it. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, I don't know what I was doing, but in any case, um, he came back, and. I was, by this time, what was I doing? I was at Universal. Uh, I wasn't under contract yet. Anyway, we, Stephen and I had tried to sell some pitches together. We had gone out, and, you know, he would direct and I would uh, write. Mm -hmm. And we'd do the story together. Anything and, that you uh No, no, we, wanna, we never sold anything. I know, but anything you want to tell us about any any of the concepts that... Well, there were, there were some really good ideas we had. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I found some of those uh, show some of those papers mm -hmm. and reread some of them. I said, "Oh, some of these are pretty good. You could you could do them today." Such as anything. Yeah, there's uh, we we did one about uh, two guys. Uh, who are on opposite sides of the Air Force in World War One, World War One flyers, and when the war is over, they make their ways separately in life until uh, they're in a competitive situation, and they uh, they basically decide to settle it in the air because they never they never had that chance during the war. So they go up and you know. I like a, that. Yeah. yeah, that was that was a good I'm one. I'm green lighting it. It's, it's, uh, so so okay, let's go back to Jaws. So now you're you're in the. So now so yeah. now Stephen needs a hit. Mm -hmm. He's uh, 
whatever Stephen was, he was always very career conscious. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sugarland Express got rave reviews, but did no business. So Stephen knew his next picture had to be a popcorn movie. Mm-hmm. So Zanuck and Brown had been developing uh, Jaws, the Peter Benchley novel. They bought the novel, and they had a script prepared by a writer named Howard Sackler. And Stephen saw the script in Zanuck and Brown's office and picked it up and took it home and said, I want to do this movie. And they said, okay. And they, they made it happen. They, uh, and Stephen asked me to be an actor in the film. And that way, if I was an actor in a continuing role, I would be on the location for a long time and I, we could work on the script together. Why did he need to ask you to be an actor? Why wouldn't he just directly say, why don't you be on the set and work on the script with me as a writer? They didn't, they, uh, well, first of all, he didn't want to write it. He needed a, he needed a writer. And, uh, uh, and, and he also knew that he was going to be spending all his time directing. It was, you know, it was, mm-hmm. it was his career was on the line. And then, of course, it didn't get any easier when we went over budget and over schedule to an unheard of degree. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it's, it's so fascinating because I always point out that I have great integrity as a writer because when I was rewriting Jaws, the character that I was hired to play that had that was in the run of the movie is the in an important part. Mm-hmm. I had to reduce that part. I cut that part down because it it wasn't necessary in the iteration that I was working on. You cut yourself. Cut myself out. You're a cutter. Yes, and then in the on the original DVDs uh, or VHS mm-hmm. versions of the movie, I. I still have co-star billing. And then, of course, over the years, the billing changed because I was no longer. Right. But it was like Scheider, Dreyfus, and Shaw in Jaws with Lorraine, Gary, Murray, Hamilton, and Carl Gottlieb. I had co-star billing. Mm-hmm. And you got Dreyfus involved, didn't you? Yes. Stephen gave me the script, the Sackler script, with a note on the cover saying, eviscerate it. So I wrote a long memo about mm-hmm. the movie. And I was right about one thing and wrong about one thing. What I was wrong about, I said, does the girl have to get killed? Like, that's such a teenage movie cliche. The girl has sex and dies. You know, mm-hmm. the, the punishment for teenage sex is death. Uh, you know, do we have to do that? Well, Stephen did it, and he did it brilliantly. It's one of the great opening scenes in the history of movies. Mm-hmm. And she dies magnificently. So now I was wrong about that. Mm-hmm. I was right about, I said, if we do our jobs right, Stephen is director, me is, is writer, people will feel about going in the water the way they felt about Hitchcock. taking a shower after yeah. cycle. That's, that's, uh, that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, and for 45 years, whenever I meet anybody and I tell them I worked on Jaws, mm-hmm. they say, you know, after I saw that movie, I yeah. didn't go, and I, I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't do it that way. I'm polite. My wife and I were talking about that. We were saying, 
that you know you have the Hitchcock shower scene and you have Jaws and you don't have too many other films that make you not want to do anything. Yeah, you know that's yep. like those are the markers of real horror. Yeah. Yep, you're really scared to do that thing. You yep. know, there's a million movies about the woods, horror in the woods. People still go camping. Yeah. People are still not too worried about the woods. Maybe there's a little bit of a horror film thing, but how many movies about the woods did that take? You know, but one Jaws, one shower scene, that's all it took. Those are good. Well, it's, horror. Just, it, it's funny. In, yeah. in the hierarchy of horror movies, the 100 best horror films of all time, the AFI 100 best, mm-hmm. Psycho's number one and Jaws is number two. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think of any other horror movie that would make you not want to do anything, and I can't. Well, Rosemary's Baby would make you want to not have a kid, but you know, the, but you'd have to have a kid. You'd be you'd have to be on that on a parent track. I guess so. To begin with, yeah. The Jerk that came after Jaws. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and and Steve, you met on the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, and- we, were, we were friends ever since Smothers Brothers. And uh, he was uh, uh, he was just starting to break as a comedian, and an executive named David Picker, at, you know, at, uh, who at that time was president of Paramount Pictures, mm-hmm. saw Steve do a concert at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, which was his breakout concert. We took him out of the clubs and put him in a twenty five hundred seat venue. Yeah. And he believed in Steve, and he signed him to a two-picture deal of movies that he would write and star in. And Steve asked me if I would help him because I had already done Jaws and I had done Which Way Is Up, which was a Richard Pryor movie. So I had my, I had my horror credentials, my my box office, you know, hit potential, but I also had experience uh, in in uh, comedy. Right. So. Uh, it, it seemed like a natural choice, and uh, we started to write it, and we were stalled, and we were stalled. We couldn't get anything going, and then one day Steve said, you know, there's a line in my act that always gets a laugh. You know, I was born a poor black For child. Sure, yeah. And I said, well, what if you were? What would that be like? And we wrote, you know, the first so th- few scenes of The Jerk. That's amazing, because that's, Without that, you don't have the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, and then, if I'm not mistaken, didn't they? Was it Paramount that decided not to make the movie? Yes. Yeah. At that time, Mike Eisner and Barry Diller, who had been running ABC Network, mm-hmm. came over to run Paramount. And in theory, they were going to run it as a triumvirate with Picker, mm-hmm. but that wasn't their plan. They they wanted, you know, they shit canned all of the projects that Picker had started including the jerk. So Steve's management, because part of the part of the development process at Paramount that Picker insisted on was that Steve appear in a short subject on film and that would be distributed for free to theater goers. They, they would splice it onto a big Paramount hit. I think it was supposed to go out with Grease. Mm-hmm. And the film audience would have a chance to see Steve in a theater on a big screen uh, and then they would 
then go to see whatever movie he was in after that. Mm-hmm. So I got to direct the short subject, which was nominated for an Academy Award called The Absent-Minded Waiter. Yeah. And uh, then they uh, decided not to go ahead with uh, the script and they needed a rewrite. So uh, Steve's management said, tell you what, give us the short, the negative, you know, no strings attached to do with as we will. And uh, give us the script that we wrote. We'll let you out of your commitment for two more scripts because mm-hmm. obviously you know if you don't want to be in the steve martin business why would you spend spend another half million dollars on scripts yeah so uh, steve's management and david picker said okay we're out of paramount we'll make a deal at universal negative pickup low budget and the rest was history were you there for the filming of the jerk i'm in it i play iron balls mcginty uh, but I, I, I wasn't around for much of it. I, I was I was off doing other stuff. Whereas Jaws, you were there for the whole thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. So well, Jaws, I got to leave after all the dialogue was filmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to go home while they went out every day and got the shark stuff on the ocean. How different of a director was Steven Spielberg to watch work than Carl Reiner? Oh. Well, Carl, Carl Reiner is was not a movie guy. He's not a cinema guy. I mean, mm-hmm. he's great for jokes, obviously, and 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 you know, no chance that a joke will be uh, clumsily shot or recorded. But he's not a film artist the way Spielberg is. Spielberg is constantly composing, you know, film. Everybody forgets, you know, Stephen did the pilot for Columbo. He directed it. I didn't know that. Yeah, nobody does. Yeah. And it's not on his resume. But he did do the the pilot for Columbo. Are you still friends with Stephen? Not, I mean, we're cordial when we see each other, but we we don't see each other anymore. I mean, he's Steven Spielberg. I mean, he's Tom Tom Hanks' friend, you know, not Uh mine. Okay. He, you know, so too bad. That's a yeah, shame. Well, we run into each other at events. We're usually wearing tuxedos, and you know, mm-hmm. and he's you know. Does he give you the credit for for helping yeah, no, him with his big, very, first big hit? He's he's very cordial. We have a dis uh, a disagreement that uh, he supported Milius's claim that John Milius wrote part of the Indianapolis speech, mm-hmm. which he did not. Melius had nothing to do with it but Spielberg sided with Melius and that frosted me a little bit because uh, Melius didn't write fuck all I also wanted to ask you about directing Ringo Starr oh that was great fun uh, when I got Caveman we had trouble casting that part because it called for somebody who had star power <laughs> but was Kind of a, a, a nebbish. Ringo star power. And we were limited. There was down to two actors. It was Dudley Moore or Ringo Starr. Mm-hmm. And Dudley Moore passed. And Ringo took the job. And I remember calling Richard Lester in London, who I had worked for in a movie called Petulia, 
And I said, Richard, I'm going to, this is Carl Gottlieb, we did Petulia, blah, blah, blah. And I'm about to do a movie with Ringo Starr. Is there anything you can tell me? Because I know you did Hard Day's Night, which is the definitive mm-hmm. rock and roll movie. There's never been one. It, it, it's the movie that defines the genre. And over the years, I've been offered movies by bands who wanted to make movies. Yeah. And I always have to tell them, I said, look, you know, you know, you're in a terrible position because the first guy who did it got it right. Yeah. Uh, so whatever you do, it's going to be compared to Hard Day's Night and unfavorably. Mm-hmm. You know, even the Dave Clark Five, you know, no, no, nobody's done it since. So don't, don't even try. So where was I? Uh, Directing Ringo Starr. Oh, yeah. So, so I, I got Ringo signed. And Richard said, okay. He says, uh, Ringo is not a trained actor. So he doesn't match very well. I always use two cameras when I'm on Ringo for close up and a wider shot, so I know it'll match. He doesn't have to doesn't have to remember exactly mm-hmm. how he said things. Right. And as it turns out, Dennis Quaid is gifted at matching. I mean, we could shoot scenes two months apart, and Dennis would do would have his hands in the right place and mm-hmm. do it perfectly. And the two of them got along well, and we were on at a difficult location. And uh, uh, but we, and, and we got it done, and it was a charming little movie, I thought, and played pretty well. Steven said uh, Ringo was here in this apartment. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, we had I had a I had a. Birthday party here once, I think, and Ringo, Ringo and Barbara here. And John Belushi was here once too. Sure, Belushi was a pal from those days. I well, I knew the pretty much the whole cast of uh, the original cast of Saturday Night Live because I knew them a lot of them from New York, from Lemmings mm-hmm. and the Lampoon. Right. And still in touch with any of those guys? Huh? Are you still in touch? Well, most of them are dead, sadly. Well, you got Chevy Chase. Chevy's alive. Bill Murray, who's you know, came soon after. Bill Murray just is in the news again. Today. Yeah, I saw. Let's let's walk. I want to show you. Okay. A few things. These are the perfect chairs to have in a place that looks like this. Yep. Here's a moment from Music Scene, which was a TV show I did. It's uh, Larry Hankin. Mm-hmm. Tony Hendra, me, uh-huh. Paul Reed Roman, um, coming over this way. And there's Jaws himself right there. Yeah. May I take a picture? Sure. Oh, this is the poker game with John Houston. Here we are. We went down to Mexico to play in Mexico for uh-huh. a weekend. Wow. Uh-huh. That's uh, Houston, uh, actor named, uh, uh, the names are on there. There's money I won from John Houston. (laughs) And that's a great picture of him at the poker table. Oh, that's great. I I cashed the real check. This is just a photocopy. Smart. But continuing this way. Hello. Here's, uh, this is me and Jack Nicholson. Nice to meet you. Hi. Hi. This is uh, 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 Daniel Lobel. Dan, 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 Dan Lobel, who's doing Hi, the. Uh, doing and the, you are? Uh, this is Atta. 
Arthur, nice to meet so you. So here's me and Jack in Prissy's honor. Okay. That's it for that. What's the what's this up here? What's the That's just a work of art. That's cool. I like it. Yeah. So tell me about the book. The Jaws Log. Oh, the Jaws Log, yeah. Best selling book about the making of a movie ever written. Congrats. Go on. And uh, I'm I'm happy to have written it. It's been in in, in print since 1975. It's been 25th, 35th, and thir- 25th, 30th, and 40th anniversary editions. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a copy? No, I don't. You should. Um, I'll get you a copy. Well, thank you. I'll be back. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. I look forward to reading that. You know, I heard you in an interview talk about to become a good writer, you have to be a good reader. Yep. Why do you think that is? Just because it's important to, because I mean, you're not saying consume content. You're not saying to be a good writer, watch a lot of movies. Why specifically being a reader makes somebody a great writer? Because since when you write, you are manipulating words to create an effect, to tell a story. And unless you're familiar with how it's done, mm-hmm. uh, you're kind of working in the dark. It's like, you know, trying to be a, trying to play baseball without ever having seen a game. Yeah, I mean, you can study the theory of it and all that, but it's not until you've actually thrown a ball around or had, had something hit at you or dropped something or gone through a, you know, nine innings till you've done that you haven't really played ball and and the same with with writing you know unless you actually you know you you see how other writers manage the same problems uh, and it makes you um, aware of the different solutions there are Two problems. How do you introduce characters? How do you build suspense? How do you, you know, how do you engage the audience's uh, or the reader's empathy for the character? Uh, you know, just, and you can't, you know, and, and when you're reading people like Dickens or Dostoevsky or Mark Twain or uh, Hemingway or the newer John Updike or J.D. Salinger, you, you read the classics of, of contemporary literature. And you, you know, you basically, you, you, you read at two levels at one level. You're just enjoying the story that, that that's when you're being a read, just a reader. But when you're reading as a writer, you're more aware of the tech of technique and the tricks that the other writer is using. And, and, uh, uh, and I find that, for a screenplay, for any kind of writing, um, it helps to prepare an outline. Usually, in my case, three by five cards. And it really helps to take a, a note from Charles Dickens. The opening chapter of David Copperfield begins with the words, in which I am born. 
And then the rest of the book, every chapter begins with in which. And then, then it's, you know, it says in which Mr. Fezziwig discovers thing in, in which, mm-hmm. you know. And I discovered that when I'm trying to create an outline, I actually pre-print file cards with the words in which. Mm. That's a good trick. On them. Yeah. And they go, and then, then I can go, you know, in which. Uh, and b- both screenplays begin with, you know, in which we introduce, in, in which we meet the principal characters. Right. And that goes back to the old Hollywood. Uh, uh, it's not, not a superstition, but in Hollywood, uh, and these kind of rules grew up over a hundred years of movie making. The first close-up is the star. Hmm. And then you know. I mean, there there might be a, a, another close up or two, but in a movie, the first close up is usually the star of the picture, Clark Gable or Vivian Lee or whoever it's going to be. And there's you know, there's like little rules like that, and, and you ignore those at, at your peril. Who's your favorite writer? My favorite writer, Jesus! I used to love Robert Heinlein. I was a science fiction guy. Mm-hmm. I also enjoy Dickens. And I like the modern police procedural writers, Michael Connolly, uh, Lee Child, Robert Crace, um, those guys. What's the first thing you ever wrote that you were proud of? In 1965... It was. I did a year off from the committee. I was in New York working for a Broadway producer, and I had an idea for an article, and I wrote a query letter, just like they taught us in journalism school. And I sent it, and three weeks later, I get a call from a soft-spoken Southern gentleman who says, "Mr. Gottlieb, this is." Um, Harold Hayes, editor of Esquire magazine. I read your query letter. Very interested in doing piece. I want you to come in and meet with us and meet the illustrator. And you know, uh-huh. anyway, I sold an article to Esquire magazine for five hundred nineteen sixty five dollars. Wow! Uh, and I uh, I bought a motorcycle with that money. And I had that bike for a couple of years in San Francisco. That must have been fun. It was great. So to round off this interview, I have a, a guy who works behind the scenes on this show. His name is Alex Fisella. And uh, he gives me a few quotes from philosophers. Okay. Run past the guests and see what they make of them. So this is what he sent for you. He said, for Jaws, a movie about scary creeping shark I picked a quote about existential dread. And here's the quote. Nor dread nor hope attend a dying animal. A man awaits his end, dreading and hoping all. And that's by William Butler Yeats. What do you you think of that one? What does it bring up for you? Well, William Butler Yeats is a smart guy, a great writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, like many quotes, it's, it's, it's... it's elegant, but it is also a perfectly formed idea. 
which exists, you know, independent of everything else he ever wrote. And uh, for that, you got to give him credit. And you have to credit the idea as being something you should know. That's, that's what good writers do. They tell us things we should know that we m- might not even know we n- need to know them. Well, what does he mean by a man awaits his end dreading and hoping all? Uh, well, you know, I think the to paraphrase that quote, an animal dies, you know, alone and unloved or alone and uh, either violently or just from old age. But the animal has no uh, or little self-knowledge or knowledge of the passage of time. Humans, we are always burdened with the knowledge of our own mortality. We know we're going to die sooner or later. And if we're waiting to die, if we're in a situation where our lives are in danger or, or we're sick or we're wounded, in that solitary moment of where you realize you're sick or wounded or dying, you are... Uh, you are aware that your whole existence is about to be snuffed out and you will exist only in the memory of others. And that's uh, that's a sobering thought. Do you have thought? I mean, you recently survived a heart attack. Thank God. I'm happy you're here. But did it bring up thoughts about your own mortality and... Only that we're all, you know, I, I've, I've never doubted my mortality. I never never expected to live forever. I'm, I'm happy that I lived this long and, and avoided crippling or, or uh, uh, illnesses that might seriously impair my, my, my quality of life. But I'm lucky, you know, I'm, despite all this happened, my heart is fine. I mean, it's been repaired, uh-huh. but the repair took, uh, and uh, I can walk and talk and drive. So, what do you make of life after so many years here? What do you think it's about? What are your What are your big takeaways about this world? Oh, listen, we're 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 all here by accident, and I have two rules of life that I'll share with you. Number one rule in life is it's supposed to be fun. It isn't always, and sometimes it's damned unpleasant, but it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be good times. You're supposed to enjoy your life, number one. And the second law, Gottlieb's second law, is uh, every now and then things go the way they're supposed to. So every now and then you have fun. Yeah, you have yeah. fun, and also everything <laughs> falls into place. Yeah. You know, the the train comes on time. You find a five dollar bill in the street. You have a cold. You know, you sneeze, but it's not a cold. It's just an allergy. You know. <laughs> Uh, you know, every day like that yesterday, I really felt like everything was in sync. And then I woke up today and everything was back out. Well, yeah. yeah. But, they, but then, like I say, every now and then things go the way they're supposed to. Right. And, and, and that's a joy, you know, you go, Whoa, look, you know, I made, you know, I made it on time. I got this done. I get, I got three errands accomplished. I mm-hmm. bought the book that I've been meaning to read. I have time to read it tonight. You know, it's just, 
stuff adds up. Here's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. He picked it because of the jerk. He said, the jerk's a movie about a man with strange luck. So I picked a quote about luck. And the quote is from, from Thomas Jefferson again, I'm a great believer in luck and, a, and I find the harder I work, the more I have of it. I think that, that, that is good old Tom Jefferson's way of saying you make your own luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the corollary to that is uh, the, the sensible person or the serious person is prepared for good luck when it comes. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's okay to suddenly, you know, win a three-week all-expenses vacation at a beautiful mountain resort. You know, that, that, that's good. Uh, but if you've got a screenplay to write and you need three weeks of isolation to do it, mm-hmm. and that happy accident comes where you win the uh, three weeks, then, then you've prepared for your luck and then you, and you get you get your work done and if anything good comes from that that's uh, you can basically say you're having extra good luck yeah that's good this one is for the long goodbye a mystery he picked a quote about the mystery of life and this is from albert einstein the quote the important thing is not to stop questioning curiosity has its own reason for existence one cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries to merely comprehend a little of this mystery each day. Yeah. Well, that, that is, again, uh, Einstein, very smart guy, uh, is basically saying that, you know, you never stop learning. You, you know, pay attention to the natural phenomena of the world, whether it's the speed of light mm-hmm. or something much more mundane. Are you still curious? Uh, ye, not, not too much so. And I'm, I'm now at a stage in my life where I'm, I'm happy to practice acceptance and not have uh, unrealistic expectations. Mm-hmm. And that I don't know what that means. What you just said. What, what, what does it mean? Practice acceptance and not have unrealistic ex- acceptance of what and expectations it's, it's, of what? It's, 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 it's existential being. You know, I'm here. I'm doing an interview with you. I'm I'm going to eat later. I'm going to go to the drugstore. Uh-huh. I'm going to there's you know, I'm I'm going to do stuff and I'm you know, I want to pay attention to it. Uh-huh. And we should be conscious of what we're doing. And uh, be aware that, you know, I'm, uh, you know, like I say, I've always been somebody who wanted to know a little bit about a lot. So in my quest for knowledge and, you know, I'm very happy every day. If I learn one one new thing a day, I'm doing I'm I'm doing good. Did you learn anything new today? Uh, well, I, I learned I learned that you're out there. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I've got one more quote for you to round off today's okay. interview. And this one is chosen because you're an official in the Writers Guild. Alex picked a quote about workers' rights, 
And this quote comes from Howard Zinn. The cry of the poor is not always just, but if you don't listen to it, you'll never know what justice is. Yeah. Um, well, again, this is, you know, all these quotes are things that uh, talk about the experience of living and how since we're all alive and we're all going to experience life, it behooves us to be mindful, to understand what we're doing, to understand the world around us as best we can. And as the Hippocratic Oath suggests, first, do no harm. You know, if you... If, uh, then, then poke someone in the eye. <laughs> but uh, that, that, that's uh, these these are all kind of rule rules for life, mm-hmm. and I can't quarrel with any of them. They all they all make sense, right? Right. And that last one, I was thinking, you know, when he said the the cries of the poor are not always just. You know, I, you hear a lot of people like I. I try to always give when we have a lot of homeless people in L.A., and yes. I get hit up quite a bit. I try to always give them something, you know? And sometimes I'm with a friend and they'll say, uh, oh, they're just going to use it for, for alcohol. I'm like, well, do you, do you drink alcohol? You know, come on. Let, let yeah. them drink it too. Why do I care what they do with it? I don't need them to invest it properly. You yeah, know, happy, I mean, yeah. happy to help, you know? Yeah. That's- so maybe they're not always just. Maybe they're going to use it for something terrible. Maybe they'll use it for something decent. Uh, but we, well, we need a, we need a be there for people, well, right? What we need to do as, as human beings is to care for everybody that we're sharing the planet with. You know, I um, agree with that. We're all, we're all we're all involved in this game together. We you know nobody like the like the philosopher said, no man is an island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also noticed no island is a man. <laughs> I never say that though. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Charlie and Bob and <laughs> Phil. A little free island chain in the Philippines. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure getting to speak with you here today, and okay. thank you so much for giving me the time and the book. Okay, you're welcome. Can I take this off? No, you have to keep it on for two hours after no I leave. <laughs> Thanks for being part of this. I'm glad you got some stuff you can use. Thank you. Did you enjoy it? As much as I enjoy these things in general, yes. Okay, I'll take it. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I wasn't put off by it. You didn't ask any stupid questions. Uh, I'll come back with something stupid. All right, thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Thank you again to Alex Fasella for putting together those philosophy quotes and Stephen Allen Green, who I still have on the line with me. Wow, he's been on the line throughout that whole interview. Stephen, how'd you like the interview? I thought it was great, Danny. I thought it was great. In fact, I'm going to go back and listen to it again. <laughs> uh, do you want to plug anything? Well, it depends on what when this is out. I, I don't know. I'm going to put it out soon, I suppose. Uh, well, I got my... Uh, Okay, well, let me, put, let me put it this way. Um, come see my show this May 22nd called The Rising Fool at the Yard Theater at 7 p.m. in Los Angeles. All my great stories, including and especially the centerpiece, 
my Jerry Lewis in London story. That's this Sunday, May 22nd. And if this podcast is is uh, dropped after May 22nd, then let me just say thanks to everyone who came to the show. It was a sellout, standing ovation. I never had such a great time in my life. And the guy from Netflix was there, and I'm in development for a movie. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Steven, thank you so much. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll do more of these. If you guys enjoyed this podcast and you do want to hear more, uh, you know, I'm a needy. Write me, thecomical at yahoo.com, and let me know that this is something you want me to keep doing. Uh, I know we've built a big audience on here, and I just abandoned you all, but that's on me. So maybe I'll come back, or maybe not. Anyway, thanks again for tuning in for this one. Bye.